in chapter 2. As you turn there, let me say that it's good to hear Linda Lightsey play the piano again, even though she's not with us in person. Linda, thank you for recording that and helping us to worship in that way. We're in Revelation chapter 2, and this series on Revelation has been really good for us because we all have an idea about what we think the church ought to be like. And we will work hard in the churches where we find ourselves to make it like the church we want it to be. And if the church is not like we want it to be, we will church hop. We will go other places. We will look for a church. There's one. There's a church right next door. We, you drove past lots of churches to get here today. And so we'll go to a church that is like we want it to be. But here in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, this has been such valuable information for us because we get a chance to see what Jesus thinks his church ought to be. And we get a chance to see that because Jesus is dictating letters that the Apostle Paul, uh, excuse me, the Apostle John is writing down to seven different churches in Asia. And as we listen in to what Jesus says to these churches, there's a pattern to the letters. Jesus will tell something uh, that he commends in the church. Then Jesus will criticize something in the church. And by listening in to what Jesus says about those churches at that time, we get an idea of what Jesus likes in the church so that we can emulate those things in this place. And we get a chance to hear what Jesus dislikes about the church so that we can turn away from those things in our church today. And in so doing, we more and more become the kind of church Jesus wants us to be and, of course, the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. So today we're going to listen in to what Jesus has to say to the church in Thyatira. So I'll begin reading in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18, that I will pray for us and we will walk through together and see what we can learn from what Jesus says to this church. Hear now the words of the risen Christ to the church in Thyatira. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come." The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even when I myself have received authority, for, authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not leave your people adrift uh, to guess what it is that pleases you or what displeases you, what th- or to guess what is good for us or what things would be harmful to us. So we thank you for speaking so clearly to us. And I pray that as we come to this letter that you had for this church in Asia, that we would listen and that you would use these words to make us more and more into the church that you would have us to be at this place and at this time, and that you would use these words to make us the people that you would have us to be at this place and at this time. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do all this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What would Jesus say to our church today in this place and at this time? It's an interesting question, and we're beginning to discern what that may be as we look at the text. But if you think about that question, I wonder how far you would get down your list of what you think Jesus may say to the church at this place and at this time. I wonder how far you would get down your list before you said, perhaps Jesus would be critical of the church today because the church today does not talk about sex and sexuality enough. You think that's something that Jesus might say. It's interesting, if you read God's Word, when God talks to his people, he talks about sex and sexuality a lot. Over 25 times in the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible that are so formative, God talks about sex and sexuality. He talks about it in the historical books. He talks about it in the wisdom literature. We're going to look at a verse today in Proverbs, from Proverbs chapter 5, and that whole chapter is really talking about sex and sexuality. But it's not just the Old Testament. God talks to his church about sex and sexuality in the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew, and then again in the Gospel of Mark, talks about sex and sexuality as he instructs his followers. The first church council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 covers the same issues that Jesus is talking about here, food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. It's so interesting to me that when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, inspires through the Apostle Paul what he would write to the churches of God, these early churches needing instruction, it is so interesting to me that he talks about sex and sexuality a lot. Paul writes about sex and sexuality to the church at Rome, He writes about it to the church in Corinth in both letters. He writes to the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, once in Ephesians and again in 1 Timothy when Timothy is the pastor there. He writes about it to the the Colossian church, to the church in Thessalonica. And here in Revelation 2, Jesus talks about sex and sexuality to the church at Pergamum and here the church in Thyatira. So what I'm getting at is this. When Jesus talks to his church, he talks about sex and sexuality. And so we as the church, if we are going to say what God says in his word, then we have to talk about sex and sexuality. If I'm going to do my job as a preacher, if I'm going to preach what is in the word, then I'm going to have to preach about sex and sexuality. So first, it's just a matter of obedience. It's something we should do. But secondly, think about it. What happens when we don't? The effect is that our flock, that our children don't hear what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality, and so they're left to learn from things outside the church, things outside the Bible. 
When we don't speak about sex and sexuality, our flock, our own minds, our own children are more influenced by television and movies and the internet and the culture at large rather than what God has to say about sex and sexuality in his word. So listen, believe me, I know this is a little bit uncomfortable, right? These are personal kinds of things. I feel it. I've been feeling the weight of it all week. But we must talk about these things because if God speaks to it in his word and if we're going to speak where the Bible speaks, then we must speak about sex and sexuality and we will do so today. We have said in these letters there is a pattern to the letters. Jesus will commend something and then Jesus criticizes something. So let's look at that in the text. You see what Jesus commends there in verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works. And we talked about hard work when we looked at the letter to Ephesus. Jesus said, I know your love, and we talked about that also because of the Ephesian church's lack of love. You can go back and hear about that in the sermon there. He says, I know your faithfulness, or your faith, which we talked about last week in the church in Pergamum. He said, I know about your service, your patient endurance, which is a big theme in Revelation. We saw it in Revelation 1 and verse 9. We saw this again in the letter to the Ephesian church. We'll see it again in Revelation 3 when we talk to, about the letter to the church in Philadelphia. But the patient endurance that, that we have to have in the waiting for God's kingdom to come. And then look what he says. This is something new. Jesus says, and that your latter works exceed the first. What's Jesus saying there? Jesus is commending them that they're growing in the faith that they're making progress, that they are maturing in their walk, that they're doing better now than they did before. Don't miss that. Jesus commends progress in the lives of the people in his church. And that's something we're working on here at our church. I hope that you will stay for dinner at 5.30 and then at 6, this Walking Your Path class, Jeremy Terry is going to present a discipleship continuum. Because we're having conversations about what does it look like in this place to grow? What does it look like to progress in the Christian faith? What does it look like to grow to maturity? And what programs do we want to offer people to help them do that? I hope you'll stay for that at 6 p.m. Or if you were gone, I hope you'll come back at 6 p.m. for that tonight because, or that you'll watch online. It will live on the website. And I hope you'll make it a priority to see it because Jesus values growth and progress, and improvement, and increasing maturity in his church. Jesus commends that. You see it there in verse 19. There are some things Jesus criticizes. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. We saw these exact two things last week in the church at Pergamum, that Jesus was concerned that they were eating food sacrificed to idols and their sexual immorality. And last week we focused on food sacrificed to idols, and so I want to review that a little bit, and then we'll focus on sexual immorality today. The reason I want to review, listen, here, this is why that's important. Because the Bible takes the same stance on food sacrificed to idols as it does sexual immorality. And sometimes for us, it is easier to get the principle, the general principle, with a situation like food sacrificed idols, because that is not something that we struggle with. And so it's easy for us to see the principle and nod our heads and say, yes, that is the way things are. But it's harder for us to hear 
when it talks about something that we do struggle with in our culture, which is sexual immorality. So I want to review what the Bible says and what we saw last week about food sacrifice to idols, and then we'll make that same argument about sex and sexuality. So that's the reason for the review. So what's the deal with food sacrifice to idols? If you were with us last week, you will recall that people in that day would bring an animal to a temple of their favorite pagan god, and part of the animal was offered as a sacrifice to that so-called god, and part of the animal was given back to the person who brought it, So they could hold a feast in honor of that pagan god. Well, as people in Pergamum and in Thyatira became Christians, they ceased this practice. But they still had friends and family members that would do this and then invite them to these festivals. And so the question became, as Christians, should we go to these feasts? And if so, should we eat the meat that has been sacrificed to idols? The Balaamites and the Nicolaitans that we saw last week, Jezebel that we see this week, those folks all said that it was okay to do so. And their argument was idols are just wood and stone. They are no gods at all, so what harm is there in participating in the feast? I mean, who wants to miss a good meal and a good party, right? So they're saying, hey, look, it's okay to go because idols are really nothing at all. We followed the argument of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we looked at that last week. And Paul says, yes, it is true, idols are nothing, the wood is just wood, the stone is just stone, but there is something spiritual going on in these meals. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that there is an unseen reality, as there's something unseen and spiritual behind the physical idols. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that to fellowship in this way is to actually fellowship with demons, that those are the spiritual forces behind the physical idols. So the bottom line last week was this. We said we are physical beings who live in a physical world, but we're also spiritual beings living in an unseen spiritual world And we must not lose sight of the fact that there is more to reality than just the physical world or else we risk harm to ourselves. And when we said that with food sacrifice idols, we all nodded and said, okay, yes, that makes sense. There's the physical, there's the spiritual. You can't just focus on the wood being wood and the stone being stone and the meat being meat because there are these spiritual things going on that we can't see. And if we don't recognize the spiritual, it could be harmful to us. And we all nodded our heads and said, yes, that is true. Now, the same argument for sexual immorality. You see very clearly that Jesus is concerned about it. He mentions it in verse 20. He mentioned it last week in the letter to the church at at Pergamum in verse 14. And, And Jesus clearly condemns sexual immorality. Now, what is behind that? Why is God against sexual immorality? A lot of folks say, is it just that God is against the idea of sex altogether. And there are people in the church who have taught that in the past. That's just something y'all don't need to be messing with. Just stay as far away from it as you can. Don't even think about it. We're certainly not going to talk about it. But I want you to know that is not what the Bible says about sex and sexuality. In fact, the Bible says that God created sex. He invented it, okay, So it's not like he's surprised by this, right? God made us sexual beings. 
He made us, and it was his idea for us to interact with one another this way. It's not like he looked down from heaven and said, oh my gosh, how did the little varmints figure out to do that with their bodies? I can't believe this is going on. No, this was God's idea. When God talks about this, he does not blush. We get embarrassed to talk about it. God's not embarrassed to talk about it. He thought of it. He invented it. He created it. In fact, he commanded it. It's the first command that he gives. And you may say, oh, my goodness, where is that? I don't remember that commandment. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 27, we're told God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so what that means is that when he made a male and he made a female, not to press it too much, but he made them different. And the difference is, one of the main differences is their sex and sexuality and the different parts that he gave them. So he made them that way from the beginning. This is before sin enters the world, right? And then God said to, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply number, and fill the earth. Now let me ask you, how would you do that? If you're Adam and Eve and you're supposed to multiply a number and be fruitful and fill the earth, how would you do that? Sex and sexuality, right? That's the answer to that question. So the first thing, this is the first thing God says to the people after he makes them. He gives them this blessing, that is, they get to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a command that God gives. And some people look at this and say, the purpose of sex and sexuality is for procreation only. It is only to have children. That's the only time you should think about this or talk about this. It's the only time God's plan is that's the only time it comes into play. Again, I want you to know that is not the teaching of the Bible. That is not what the Bible says. Yes, this blessing is for procreation but it goes further than that. God clearly gave this gift, this blessing for our pleasure, for our delight. How do we know? Well, there are a lot of places. Let's just talk about Proverbs chapter 5. The context there, Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, is giving instruction to his son. And he says to his son, listen, in your attempt to get pleasure, in your search for delight, you are going to be tempted to have sex with people you're not married to. The temptation for you is going to be to have sex with people, with, with lots of different people. And, 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 and he says in Proverbs chapter that leads to great harm and to great heartache. And he tells his son, that is the path to death. Don't go down that road. And in that context, in Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in about verse 18, he's talking to his son and he says to his son, May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breasts fill you with delight. May you be ever captivated by her love. A couple of things about this text. First, it's clearly not talking about procreation. He's talking about delight. He's talking about pleasure. He's talking about where not to find it and where to find it. That is clearly the context here. And explicitly, that's what he says. Second, when he says in verse 19, may her breast fill you with delight, he's obviously talking about pleasure and delight and, and not depress it too far, but you know, he's not referring to a reproductive organ here, right? He's not talking about reproduction. And when he says in verse 20, may you be ever captivated by her love, the word there for captivated, it's, it's literally intoxicated, May you be intoxicated. He's talking about the feelings and the, the rush. And he says the next verse, he says, don't be intoxicated by other women, by other men's wives, 
but have this kind of relationship only within the context of marriage. But clearly, don't miss that this is the context for not just procreation, but pleasure and great delight. That's not just the teaching of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul writes this in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. You can read there that the husband should meet his wife's sexual needs and the wife should do the same for her husband. Do not refuse to meet each other's needs unless you both agree for a short period of time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together so that Satan might not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We could go on and look at more passages of Scripture, but don't miss the point. The point is God's not anti-sex. He's not against sex, right? He created it. He commands it within the context of marriage. And so he's not against sex. What he's against is sex wrongly used. So how is sex rightly used? You can see in the context of what we've looked at. Genesis 1, Proverbs 5, 1 Corinthians 7. They all talk about sex and sexuality between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And that's why the writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Now, if Jesus is not against sex and sexuality in general, but he's only against sex wrongly used, then what's going on here at this church in Thyatira? What's going on at that church in Pergamum that we looked at last week. Well, from history and uh, from other places in Scripture, we understand their argument. Their argument was probably something like this. They were saying, and remember, this is what Jesus is critiquing, okay? I'm not saying this is the right view. This is the wrong view, okay? So these folks are saying, once you understand the quote-unquote deep things of God, they would argue, then you know the body is not sacred, and it's the soul that really matters. And they would argue that one day our soul will be liberated from this bodily prison. And that's what you're going to be for eternity is a spirit. So it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. You are just to preserve your soul. To make the argument a little more contemporary, basically what they are saying is you can do whatever you want with your own body. We hear that, the spirit of this argument in our day, don't we? And these folks were saying you would understand this was true if you understood the deep things of God which are spiritual in nature. And Jesus hears that argument in verse 24. Jesus says those are not the things of God. Jesus says, you're talking about the deep things of Satan. That's the argument Jesus makes here in verse 24. So what's wrong with their view? What's wrong with their argument? Well, the Bible does affirm that we are physical beings, that God made us with physical bodies. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1. But our bodies are far more important than what these folks were, were saying. You see, our bodies are a part of who we are. And yes, the finished work of Christ on the cross does save our souls. But it also saves our physical bodies. One day we'll be resurrected, not just spiritually. We're not talking about just a spiritual resurrection. But we'll have a bodily resurrection, and we will receive resurrected, glorified bodies. The Lord Jesus Christ, right now at the right hand of God, is in a physical body. He will return in a, in a body. 
The Lord Jesus Christ himself has put on flesh, and that invests the physical with great importance. We are made up of body and soul. And so it follows, because that's the way we are made, that more than just our bodies are involved in sex. You see, when we unite our bodies, we unite more than just our bodies. We unite our spirits. When we share our bodies with each other in this very intimate way, we also share our very souls. Now, if you're thinking, okay, where is that in the Scripture? I haven't seen it. That's good. You should be asking that question. You should hold preachers to that standard. And the place I would point you is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's explaining to them why they should not sleep with prostitutes, which I find fascinating that he's writing to a church, and that's one of the things that he needs to address. And the reason he needs to is because they have this view that your body doesn't really matter. So you can do whatever you want with your body. It's only your soul that matters, and that's where the deep things of God are. And so I'm just going to protect my soul, and so I can go have sex with a prostitute because that doesn't affect me spiritually. And Paul has a problem with that argument. He makes a physical argument. He says that you are a part of the body of Christ, and so you don't want to physically join a member of the body of Christ with a prostitute. So he makes a physical argument. But he also makes a spiritual argument. He said that we are spiritual beings. That's where he says that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you just memorized that one verse out of it, and your Sunday school teacher didn't talk about what came before and after that, right? Because it's talking about sex with a prostitute. But Paul said your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and when you're united to Christ, you are united to the Spirit of God. And then when you unite your body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, with a prostitute, you are uniting the Spirit of God with, the, with this other spirit. And Paul says it's wrong, that it's, that it's great sin, that it's a really heavy kinds of sin to participate in this kind of activity. Because Paul says that sex involves our becoming one in body and in flesh, but also in spirit. And that's why their argument is wrong. Again, let me make the argument we made before, right? We are physical beings living in a physical world. But we're also spiritual beings living in an unseen spiritual world. And we must not lose sight of the fact that there's more to reality than just the physical world or else we risk harm to ourselves. Okay, now I see how that applies to food, sacrifice to idols, and sex and sexuality. Notice that these folks, these Balaamites, the Nicolaitans, Jezebel, they did not deny Jesus outright. They were arguing, look, you belong to Jesus. You've been baptized. You've eaten at the Lord's table. Nothing can end your relationship with Jesus. You're okay, so don't worry about your body or eating meat. Since you're in Christ and have received his grace, nothing can make you lose your salvation. And that's true, right? If we're in Christ Jesus, if we belong to him, there is nothing that can make us lose our salvation. That is true. But even though there may be nothing we can do to lose our salvation, there are many things we can do that would do great harm to ourselves. And that brings me to a very important point that, that applies to this subject and many others as well. So get this one, all right? If I've lost you, come back. Listen, this is important. God's commands, God's rules, God's laws, 
They protect us from things that will harm us. Listen to me. God does not forbid things because he wants us to miss out on fun. God forbids things because he wants us to miss out on harm. Jesus loves us too much to allow us to give ourselves to things or become enslaved to things that will hurt us. And that's why he makes this argument about sexual immorality. Because there's no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people may be about it. We simply cannot go to bed with someone and leave our spirit and leave our souls out of it. Therefore, the Bible's call to honor the marriage bed is not just some rule made up to rob us of fun by a God who hates sex. The call to keep the marriage bed pure respects reality. And it protects us from harm by a God who loves us, a God who created sex, a God who commanded sex in its proper context, by a God who made us sexual beings and wants us to enjoy sex to the fullest extent possible. And that's why marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Now, if that's what the Bible teaches about sex, if that's what the Bible's teaching is, then let's confront some of the things we hear in our culture, some of the things that, that, that the culture would say to us. What are some of the things that we hear out there? One of the big ones is just sex is just a normal, natural appetite. That it's like eating food, you, just, you need food, you need sleep. It's just a physical need that must be met. Boy, I hear this with movies, sitcoms on TV. That's the assumption, right? That you go on a date one time because you meet somebody. If you really like them, you go on a second date. And then by the third date, they're saying you should be having sexual relations because that's a need and that's just what you should do. That we have this hunger, we have this drive, it's just like a physical need. And we should meet that need just like we do hunger. In fact, they would go further and say there's no reason not to sample a variety of cuisines or eat at different restaurants and have sex with lots of different people. The Bible does say that sex, like eating food, is an appetite. But even with our desire for food, we struggle to discipline ourselves. Because our desire for food is usually out of line with what our bodies actually need. Somebody just say amen right there, right? This is something we struggle with. And we acknowledge it in this area, that our appetites are messed up, that they're out of whack with what we need. The very actors and actresses that portray these things would be quick to say, I don't eat as much food as I'm hungry for or our desire because it can have harmful effects on my body. Yet they make a totally different argument when it comes to sex. Listen, the sex as an appetite argument proves the need for restraint. It proves that we need to have some parameters, so whether we're talking about sex and sexuality or other desires that we have, listen, beloved of God, listen, church, let's not believe the lie that just because we have a desire or a hunger or a drive, then it must be right and something that must be fulfilled because of the fall. Because of sin entering the world, because of sin in our own heart, our desires are distorted they're broken and messed up. 
and to give in to them just because we have them can lead to great harm, whether we're talking about food or sex and sexuality, which Jesus is talking about both in this context. But I want you to notice another thing about that argument. This is just a physical need like sleep or like eating that, that you should fill, right? That you should grant that desire. Do you hear the assumption? The assumption is that it's only physical, like something you eat, like that's just a physical need, that's just a physical thing for our physical bodies. And the Bible clearly says that sex is more than that, that it have uncomfortable conversations. That we're willing to speak where God speaks and we're slow to tread where he does not speak. It means we're willing to talk to one another to help them avoid the hurt that we've experienced while at the same time testifying to the grace and mercy of God that we ourselves have experienced and are therefore willing to extend to others. And it means we're willing to talk about the grace of God that empowers us to walk in newness of life and to turn from things that once enslaved us. May God make us one of those kinds of churches that is willing to talk about these things and to walk in his ways. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us to drift aimlessly, but you tell us your plan for what you have invented, what you have created, what you have commanded. Help us to walk in your ways and to avoid the harm that can befall those who do not live life as you designed it to be lived. And for those of us who have fallen short, Christ Jesus, I pray that your mercy and your grace and your goodness to broken and messed up people would come through loud and clear and that we would look to you, not do our own goodness, but your goodness on our behalf, your payment for sin on our behalf. To make us right with God. Please do that this day. For it is in Jesus name that we pray. Amen.